You can turn in your Bibles to Romans chapter 9. Romans chapter 9, I want to read in your hearing this morning. first five verses. The ninth chapter of Paul's epistle to the church at Rome. I am speaking the truth in Christ. I'm not lying. My conscience bears me witness in the Holy Spirit that I have great sorrow and unceasing anguish in my heart, for I could wish that I myself were accursed and cut off from Christ for the sake of my brothers, my kinsmen according to the flesh. They are Israelites. And to them belong the adoption, the glory, the covenants, the giving of the law, the worship, and the promises. To them belong the patriarchs, and from their race, according to the flesh, is the Christ, who is God over all. Blessed forever. Amen. Today, brethren, we embark on a journey that will take us through the next major section of the book of Romans. I'm talking about chapters 9 and 10. And 11, it's critical for us to see right here at the beginning that all three of these chapters come as a unit. We don't want to separate them. Now, look, I know we often single out Romans 9 because of the certain doctrinal emphasis that we find in it. But chapters 10 and 11 are part of the same package. In these three chapters, Paul seeks to do something. He is seeking to answer one basic, fundamental, necessary question. A question that in these three chapters, we're going to keep coming back to over and over and over again. You know what? When there's a question presented to us that Paul, that a writer of Scripture, an actual apostle under the inspiration of God, feels like he's got to give three chapters to answering, it's probably pretty critical. That alone should be enough to convince us of its importance. We'll get back to what that question is in a few minutes. I have four points in my message this morning. 
an overview, one, an analogy, two, a warning, and a problem. Or, in other words, what is this question? What is the problem that Paul's addressing that brings rise to a question? So first, an overview. Look, you may not know it. You may be here today. Romans 9 just virtually means nothing to you. You don't have any idea about it. I want to do a little bit of an overview of this chapter. I want to kind of hit on a point or two. Just quickly to show some of the contents. I know, some of you here, you're already familiar with this. You know what's here. But I'm sure that there are others that you're not on the same page. You may not have a clue. So just take a moment, give a little insight as to what's contained. How many of you know John 3.16? You can quote it, right? Most of you can quote it. You have an idea about what it says. Probably the most quotable text in all the Bible. For God so loved the world that He gave His only begotten Son that whosoever or whoever believes in Him should not perish but have eternal life. Who does God give eternal life to? Whoever believes. Not just, a lot of people believe a lot of things. Whoever believes what? In Him. Who's Him? His only begotten Son. Whoever believes in the Son of God, that is Christ the Lord. Now look, is that simple or is that complicated? A lot of people want to make the Gospel out to be an enormously complicated thing. It is not. Just at the Bible study on Tuesday, I explained the Gospel to a man and he said it can't be that easy. I said, are you going to be too smart to be saved? The Gospel is not difficult. Men make it so. The great obstacle to the Gospel is not its difficulty. I guarantee you of that. God gave us a Gospel that is simple enough for a little child to understand and be saved by. Men are perishing in their sins. Destruction looms before them. To be saved from this destruction Men must look outside of themselves. That's what faith is. Faith is looking outside of oneself and it is trusting in Christ alone. By an act of your will. By an act of the will of man. A man must willingly choose Christ. He must willingly look outside of himself. Receive Christ. Follow Christ. They must trust Christ. But here it is. The fact is, some get saved and some don't. Some receive Christ. Some don't. Some will have Him. Some will not. The question is, why? Why the difference? 
The Gospel's preached. Christ Jesus came into this world not to save good people. He came to save sinners. To call them to repentance. One man says, Wow! That perfectly suits me. Sinner I am. Another sees nothing in it and walks away. One received mercy. One does not. What makes the difference? That's exactly the question. Now, we didn't sing it today, but it's exactly the question of the songwriter. Why was I made to hear thy voice and enter while there's room when thousands make a wretched choice and rather starve than come? Why, Lord? Why did I hear your voice when others don't? Why did I come when others refuse? That's what the songwriter asks. And that is a good question. It is a worthy question. And that is exactly the question we have answered for us by the Apostle Paul in Romans chapter 9. But let me warn you. I'll warn you right now. Most men do not like the answer to this. You may not like it either. So let's ask Paul the question. Apostle Paul. Hey, Paul. Why do some men receive the mercy of God and are saved and some don't? Paul says, okay, I'm glad you asked that. Answer, Romans 9.15. For He, that's God, God says to Moses, I will have mercy on whom I have mercy. And I will have compassion on whom I have compassion. Now notice verse 16 very closely. So then it depends not on human will or exertion, but on God who has mercy. Then look at verse 19. So then He, that's God, has mercy on whomever He wills. Oh, and this is the statement that men do not like. And God hardens whomever He wills. Now, something in you may be ready to recoil from this. God hardens men? What's that? I never thought such a thing. I never heard of such a thing. What church have I come to? You just remember this. I am not telling you this. You are reading this in your Bible. If you've got your Bible open and you're reading Romans 9.18. This is not my invention. This is the Apostle Paul under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit of God and he tells you that ultimately it is God who wills, who determines who has mercy shown to them and who is hardened. You may just feel some strange jolt of hostility about this shoot through your veins. You find yourself already trying to explain away these verses. You don't like them. But my friend, 
Don't fight it. Paul's already ahead of you. He totally anticipates your response. Look at verse 20. But who are you, O man, to answer back to God? Paul knows that by nature men don't like this teaching. And oh, how carelessly men answer back to God. You know what? Men want to be in control. They want to be independent. They want a God who is not threatening. But I'll tell you what, the God of Romans 9, who is also the God of the whole Bible, is a God who is a threat to men and to their pride. Men say they believe that God's sovereign. And you know what they, most men really believe when they say that? They suppose that God can do anything under the sun just as long as you let Him. Right? Oh yeah, God can save whoever He wants. Salvation's of the Lord. As long as I give Him permission to do it. That's what most men believe. That's what they suppose. I'll tell you what this chapter does. It is like some great claw and it just rips through the very heart of such humanistic, man-centered thinking. God shows mercy on some men and hardens others all totally according to His will. Verse 16 stuns us with this truth that our human will is not ultimately the deciding factor. That's not to say it isn't involved. It's just to say it isn't the ultimate deciding factor. He has mercy on whomever He wills. This scares men. And you know what? It should. In this day of self-esteem and non-offensive, seeker-sensitive churches, we need a good healthy dose of the fear of God. We do. We need for our man-centered little worlds to come crumbling down around us. But my friend, you also don't want to miss the fact that in these verses, God is the God who does show mercy. And you want to never miss that. We should fear Him, yes, because He is fearful. But listen to me. As old Mr. Beaver put it in the Chronicles of Narnia, He's not a tame lion, but He is good. There's my little overview. I just wet your whistle a bit on what's coming at us in this chapter. My second heading here is an analogy. You guys all know what an analogy is? It's where you take something and you create this scenario that is like something else. I mean, we, we talk about... What's a good example of an analogy? I'll give you one. Here it is. I created one. Romans chapter 9 is like something in my mind. That's what an analogy is. It's saying something else is like something else and explaining 
you know, how they are common and how they connect. In my estimation, Romans chapter 9 is like a razor-sharp knife made of pure diamond. And I say diamond, if you can imagine such a thing, simply because it's the hardest thing that we know, right? Am I wrong? Have they discovered something else harder than that? I mean, if you think about a knife that was like that, imagine it's made purely of diamond. It's razor sharp. It's impossible to dull it. You've got it. You look at it. It's beautiful. It's expensive. It's sharp. It's useful. And it is undullingly hard. The edge glitters with pristine fineness. Its surface has been polished to brilliant perfection. Now here's the thing. If you own such a knife, you would immediately realize on the one hand, something like this would be very valuable. It'd be very useful. And think about what you could do with a really sharp knife. And we use knives to eat with. You could use it to eat. We use knives to work with. And remodeling a balcony and making it into an office. I've needed sharp things and knives a lot of times. You, you could work with a sharp knife. You could defend yourself with it, right? You got a good sharp knife and an enemy coming after you. You could operate on someone with it. I'm personally not into that, but there are they've got a couple doctors here that they, they know about that. There are multitude of uses for a good knife, especially one that was razor sharp and would never dull. But you know as well as I do that as much as a knife can be useful and helpful, it can also be dangerous and it can do harm. If you were to put such a knife in the hand of a child or an idiot, then what? Someone might get hurt. In fact, even if you yourself became careless with it, provided you're not a child or an idiot, you could still end up cutting yourself with it or someone else. Romans 9 is like such a knife. It is useful in many ways. It is a help. It is valuable. We can use it to eat certain glorious truths. We can defend ourselves from bad teaching with it. We can operate on others with it and try to cut away error. But it can also be dangerous if misused. We can hurt people with it and we can hurt ourselves with it if we're not careful. There's my little analogy. Maybe you're wondering, how could we hurt somebody with it? Well, That brings me to my third head, a warning. Often when you get a machine, they don't typically come with knives, but if you get a machine or a device that's useful, yet it has the potential to be dangerous if misused, you might get some instructions with it. They'll come and they'll have warnings there. I actually, my warning is four warnings. Here they are, four warnings for you. Now look. We're not going to get real far into Romans 9 today. We're starting a new chapter. I'm wanting to get... we're, We're doing more of an introduction this morning. But I realize some of the dangers with Romans 9. And so I want to lay out some good fundamental principles and warnings for us as we prepare ourselves to go through this section of Scripture. My first warning... Now listen, 
God does not reveal Himself to us primarily for the sake of debate. But primarily for the sake of worship. In John 4, Jesus tells us that God the Father is seeking true worshipers. People to worship Him in spirit and in truth. He does not say the Father is looking for those who can primarily debate doctrine. One of the dangers that lurks in the deeps of Romans 9 is the temptation of seeking to analyze Scripture in a purely cold intellectual fashion. God does not give us this chapter primarily so that you can go out and win your debate with your Arminian friend. It's not what it's for. The Lord God does not put Himself on display in this chapter simply so that you can analyze Him. He does so in order that you might fear Him and honor Him and adore Him and maybe more than anything else, trust Him. Paul's agenda is to show us God, not make us good Calvinists. The Bible isn't about defending men's systems. The Bible is a written revelation of God inspired by God to teach men about God so that they might worship God. Don't lose sight of that. Brethren, if we finish this study and all you've been persuaded of is that your doctrinal position and system is better than someone else's, you've missed it. If you walk away on the other hand, and all you can say is, wow, God is much greater, He is much more sovereign, and He is much more trustworthy than I ever imagined, then you're on your, the right path, folks. Second warning. And now look, I give that first warning not for no reason. There's very often people run to Romans 9 so that they can defend themselves in an argument, not so much to see God. That's a reality. Second warning. If you are not careful as we go through these verses, there is the possibility for you to distort the character of God and the character of man, and the character of the Gospel into things that they are not. You are very liable to be misled about who God is, who man is, and the necessity of the Gospel if you do not read and study and learn this right. More than just a few men and women have twisted the truths in Romans chapter 9, ended up making God out to be cruel, men out to be robots, and the Gospel out as irrelevant. If you don't know what I mean, that's okay. Because we're going to look at these things much more particularly in the weeks ahead. But my main caution to you here is this. Don't assume things that are not specifically stated and make certain that your conclusions about these verses are in harmony with the rest of Scripture. Tread very softly here in great fear, lest you be guilty of dishonoring God or His Gospel through some perverted misrepresentation of Him. And oh, how prone men are to do that. Again, that is not a warning without cause. Third warning, be humble. Especially if God does help you to comprehend the truth of Romans 9. In other words, beware of pride. 
It's amazing how the very truths of Romans 9, which ought to shatter our pride, can end up fueling a knowledge that puffs people up with pride. Especially you young Christians. I want to warn you, beware. As you are given insights and the Holy Spirit teaches you about the deep mysteries of God, there can be a temptation of feeling superior to others who don't know as much as you do. You can get to the place where instead of feeling small before the huge God portrayed in Romans 9, with this overwhelming sense of His power and authority and sovereignty, you're out there trying to beat people up with this stuff. Listen to me. Listen carefully to me. When you're dealing with your lost family members and friends, you do not need to be bringing them to Romans chapter 9. Paul does not start in Romans 9. He starts in Romans 1 with the depravity and the wretchedness and the sinfulness of man. And then what does he do? He immediately in Romans chapter 3, after concluding that all men are under sin, he brings them right to the cross. He brings them to propitiation and to redemption. To faith in Christ. You don't need to take lost folks to predestination and election and to these deep mysteries of God. Be careful here. May God help you do the same. Fourth warning. Be humble also if you are here and you struggle to understand this. I read something a while back by John Piper. I couldn't find it, but he stated this, that in his estimation, he believed that most people's difficulties understanding the doctrines of the Bible, when people are confronted by Bible teaching and they have difficulties comprehending it, in his estimation, it has more to do with pride than it does with the fact that those doctrines are unknowable. In other words, many men are not able to figure out truth for no other reason than that their own pride stands in the way. I, you know what? I think he's right. I think the Apostle Peter would think he's right. You know what he says? 1 Peter 5.5 5, God opposes the proud, but gives grace to the humble. How much do you think you need God's help to properly understand His Word? A lot. Like, maybe totally you're dependent on Him to understand. Which means that if you do understand, it's because He gives you understanding. Which every gift or giving of God to you is grace. You need grace to understand this. Grace is given to who? To the humble. And God does what to the proud? He opposes them. And so is it surprising that when proud people go to the Bible, they don't understand? Why? Because proper understanding is a gift of God. But God doesn't give grace to the proud. He opposes the proud. So it's not surprising that proud people walk away from the Bible with an inability to understand. Look, if you go out this door today or in any of the days after this, and you have some twisted, perverted idea about what God is, that's a great witness and testimony to your own pride. We need to be humble. Look, something in all this comes out 
Romans chapter 9, don't go away kicking and screaming and throwing a tantrum. You go out that way, don't expect that God's going to show you. You need to humbly... I realize there may be some folks in here that will wrestle with some of these things. That's okay to wrestle. But humbly go to God and say, Lord, I don't get this. I don't understand this. Be humble. Ask God to help you see. Ask God to help you learn. And look, be ready to abandon your former way of thinking about God if God shows you that that former way of thinking is wrong. Be ready to ditch it. Be ready to give place to the Word of God. You may very well be confronted by truths you've never imagined before. If so, please don't reject them simply because they're new or foreign or make you feel uncomfortable. Look, God is who He is. And who He is is not always what you think He is. But He is exactly what the Bible says He is. We don't want to create God in our own image. We don't want to create God in the image of our traditions. Humbly pray that God would give you eyes to see Him as He really is, not just the way you've imagined Him to be. Folks, can I tell you something? It is a privilege to be able to see and know God for who He really is. And very few men have that privilege. But I'll tell you this, you humble yourself, you pray to God to give you give you an understanding, give you a vision. He's faithful. Humble yourself. He'll exalt you through visions of Himself. So there you have it. Four warnings. Beware of just acquiring doctrine. Acquire a vision of God that moves you to worship. Beware of assuming things that are not specifically stated. Don't be proud if God allows you to understand this chapter. And don't be proud and unteachable if the true God turns out to be different than you expected. Okay. That brings me to my last head. This has all been introduction. A bit of an overview, an analogy, forewarnings. We haven't even looked yet at the text. Clear, we're not going to get far this morning. Anyways, this does bring me to the text. Folks, there's a problem. Before we leave here today, I at least want you to have a firm grasp, or at least a beginning, to understand why Romans 9, 10, and 11 even exist. I told you earlier that Paul takes no less than three chapters to answer a question. Maybe more accurately, we might call it an objection that some will raise against this Gospel that he's been proclaiming for eight chapters. Because there does seem to be a massive problem. Now look, I want you to understand something. Yes, it's true that Romans 9 does tell us some things about the sovereignty of God in men's salvation. It's true. But listen to me. Romans 9, 10, and 11 are not just simply some extensive treatment of sovereignty. Something else is going on here. 
Paul anticipates a massive objection in some people's minds. So what is it? What is the huge problem? What's the objection against Paul's Gospel? You know what? I don't want to just come right out and tell you. That always keeps people awake, right? I want us to work at this a little bit first. One thing I realize as I, as I look at this, Romans chapter 8 and Romans chapter 9 were never divided by a chapter division when this was originally given. Nor was chapter 8 dealt with last week and chapter 9 dealt with this week. When they first read this, when they read these first five verses in Romans 9, guess what? Only moments before, they would have read the very conclusion of Romans 8, right? It would have come at them all in the same time. Well, since that's the case, I can't do the full thing and I don't have time to really read the whole book of Romans to you right now to give you the whole flavor. But let me at least give you a little bit. I want to read the last two verses of Romans 8 and then I'm going to read the first five verses of Romans 9 and I want you guys to follow with me and see if you can notice a connection. So Romans 8.38 For I am sure that neither death nor life, nor angels, nor rulers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor powers, nor height, nor depth, nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus our Lord. I'm speaking the truth in Christ. I'm not lying. My conscience bears me witness in the Holy Spirit that I have great sorrow and unceasing anguish in my heart, for I could wish that I myself were accursed and cut off from Christ for the sake of my brothers, my kinsmen according to the flesh. They are Israelites, and to them belong the adoption, the glory, the covenants, the giving of the law, the worship, and the promises. To them belong the patriarchs, and from their race according to the flesh is the Christ, who is God over all, blessed forever. Amen. Here's my question to you guys. What in the world is the connection between these two chapters? How does Paul go from telling us about the inseparable love of God that Christians have in Christ to talking about Israelites, Jews who have rejected God? It's easy to see why someone did put a chapter division here. The change is drastic. It's immediate. It's sudden. It's so sudden, in fact, that some Bible expositors have even supposed that maybe Paul had written Romans 9-11 through at some other time. It was a separate writing altogether and it just sort of got stuck in here. Now look, let me guarantee you, That is not the case. What we find in Romans 9 has absolutely everything to do with what was just said in Romans 8. Let me try to show you what's going on here. I'll do this by asking you another question. 
in verse 2, Paul says he has great sorrow and unceasing anguish in his heart. Then in verse 3, he actually says that he could wish himself accursed and cut off from Christ. Here's my question. Who is causing Paul's anguish? Who is it that he loves so much that he could wish himself cut off from Christ? Who? God rejecting Israelites. The answer is obvious. He identifies them. End of verse 3. The beginning of verse 4. He calls them my brothers. He calls them my kinsmen according to the flesh. Israelites. Now, here's the second question, and it was already sort of answered by Craig's answer. Why are they causing Paul anguish? What is implied all over these verses? The reality here is unmistakable. Paul could wish himself accursed and cut off from Christ because he feels the deep anguish of the fact that his kinsmen, his fellow Israelites, are what? They themselves are lost. They're accursed. They are cut off from Christ. The very thing he could wish upon himself is the very thing he knows to be true about them. They are accursed. They are separated from Christ. Folks, if you jump over to Romans 10.1, Paul shows you exactly this truth. My heart's desire and prayer to God for them, speaking of Israel, is that they may be saved. Which means what? They're lost. In Paul's day, just like in our day, most Jews reject Christ. That's the reality. Most Jews are under the curse of God. Most Jews are lost. That's the clear implication. Or Paul would not be praying and desiring that they would be saved. Look at what Paul says about the Jews in Romans 9.31. 9.31. Israel. Again, he's speaking here about national Israel. His kinsmen according to the flesh. Israel who pursued a law that would lead to righteousness did not succeed in reaching that law. Why? Because they did not pursue it by faith. But as if it were based on works. They have stumbled over the stumbling stone as it is written, Behold, I'm laying in Zion a stone of stumbling and a rock of offense. And whoever believes in Him, that's Christ, will not be put to shame. That stumbling stone, that rock of offense is a person. He calls that stone Him. That is Christ. Now, if you're looking at this and thinking to yourself, yes, I see this. I see that Israel sought to get right with God by works and by keeping law. And I see they failed. I see they stumbled over Christ. I see they rejected Him. I see that they did not pursue acceptance with God by faith. Yes. Yes, yes, I see it. It's there. But how in the world does that tie in with the great promises that we just got done seeing in Romans 8? All th- you know what? The great promises. All things work together for those who love God. Great promises. In the end, they'll be glorified. Great promises that God is for them. Great promises that if He did not withhold His own Son, how will He not with Him freely give us all things? Great promises like no condemnation against you will ever stick. 
Nobody can bring that. Nobody can bring a charge against you that's going to stick. You are more than conquerors through Christ. Promise after promise after promise. What in the world does that have to do with these guys? How is there even a connection? How does this at all connect? Okay, you ready for this? Here it is. Let's go way back about 2,500 years ago. Oh, maybe even further than that. Guess what you've got? Some pagan man by the name of Abraham. God spoke to him and took him out from among his people. And God made a covenant with him. God gave him promises. Israel came forth from that man's loins. Can I tell you something? You come to the days of Moses, and God says to Moses, you go in there and you tell Pharaoh, thus says the Lord, Israel is my firstborn son. Israel. His firstborn son. Deuteronomy 7.6 Moses, speaking about Israel, says this, You are a people holy to the Lord your God. The Lord your God has chosen you to be a people for His treasured possession. Out of all the peoples who are on the face of the earth, Amos 3.2, one of the minor prophets, God, speaking to Israel, says this, you only have I known of all the families on the earth. So Israel is God's chosen people. Next, consider this. Really consider this. Isaiah 45.17 But Israel is saved by the Lord with everlasting salvation. You shall not be put to shame or confounded to all eternity. But what do we find when we come to God's Word? John 1.11 The Christ, the Word, everlasting Word of God becomes flesh. John 1.11 says He came to His own and His own did not receive Him. Matthew 8.11 Christ says this, I tell you, many will come from east and west and recline at table with Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob in the kingdom of heaven, while the sons of the kingdom will be thrown into outer darkness. This is exactly why Paul is in anguish. Israel is accursed and separated from Christ. They've tripped on the rock of offense, the stone of stumbling in Hebrews 3.19. We see Israel unable to enter the promised land. Why? Unbelief. Their dead carcasses are littered in the wilderness. Why? They did not believe their God. Stephen comes along 1,400 years later and says to the Jews, you stiff-necked people, uncircumcised in heart and ears, you always... Resist 
the Holy Spirit as your fathers did. Jews, Israel, just like they did, you do today. You are God-rejecting, God-hating, stiff-necked people, you Jews. Which of the prophets did not your fathers persecute? They killed those who announced beforehand the coming of the righteous one, whom you have now betrayed and murdered. Paul, speaking of the Jews over in Romans 10, 16, says this, they have not all obeyed the gospel. Then in 10, 21, he says, but of Israel, God says, all day long I've held out my hands to a disobedient and contrary people. Look, are any of you seeing a problem yet? Here's the great dilemma, folks. It seems like God chose the nation of Israel. He made him his son, made Israel his treasured possession. You only have I known. In Romans 9 4, it says, To them belong adoption, glory, covenants, promises. And where are they? What's happened to them? Isaiah says Israel is saved by the Lord with everlasting salvation, but I see a wilderness full of their damned, unbelieving carcasses. What's the deal here? I see the Jews. They're shouting to Pilate. Crucify Him. Crucify Him. I see the godly Stephen calling the Jews stiff-necked. I see Paul in anguish over Israel's accursed separation from Christ. I see the Jews by the multitudes lying wrecked on the great stone of stumbling. Christ Himself. Brethren, the great and alarming problem in all this is the unbelief of Israel. The chosen people and their consequent separation from Christ. Do you realize the massive implications of all this? What Paul sees in this is if people look at this and they say, God made promises to Israel and now they're damned. God made promises and look at them. They've all rejected the Christ. They've stumbled over Him. If His promises did not hold with the Jews, then how can we even think that these promises can hold with us? That is the massive problem. It has everything to do. If the Jews have failed to live up to the promises that God gave, then what hope do we have in all the promises He's given us as Christians? Will we not just as likely turned out to be damned in the end? Folks, Paul's answer to this thunders through the whole middle portion of Romans in verse 6. Romans 9.6 But it is not as though the Word of God has failed. That is the problem. That is the issue. That is the great argument to come up in people's minds. Maybe you guys don't feel the weight of this. But I'll tell you what, in his day they did. We should feel that as well. And he guarantees, look, it's true. Israel has by and large rejected their Savior. But don't for a second believe that it's because one of God's promises have failed or because God's Word has failed. Yes, 
Israel has failed. But God has not. It may feel like God's Word has failed, but Paul is now going to give us three entire chapters to show us and convince us and establish right before our eyes that God is absolutely trustworthy. And His Word has not in the least failed. And though the vast majority of Jews have indeed rejected Christ, their rejection is exactly according to the plan and counsel of God. It has not caught Him by surprise. And it is not contrary to one covenant or one promise that He's ever given. So Christian, you are to be absolutely unshakable in the promises God has given you. Though you can see the carcasses of Israel scattered around you, you are secure. And that's what Paul's going to prove to us. Every promise of God to you finds its yes in Jesus Christ. And this is right at the heart of the problem. The Jews have rejected Him. Let me emphasize one last thing to you all. We will see in the weeks ahead that national Israel is accursed. They are separated from Christ. They have been hardened exactly according to the will of God. But I want you to remember this. Every Jew who perishes does so for the very same reason that every Gentile will perish who perishes. They perish without Christ. Because just like Stephen said, they've resisted the Holy Spirit, just like Paul said, they have not obeyed the Gospel, they have stumbled over the rock of offense. The King of the Jews, their long-awaited Messiah, look at Him. Nailed to a wooden cross, hanging there cursed, like a common criminal, seemingly defeated, naked, wretched, dying, his own life's blood spilling forth. In the Jewish mindset, that's offensive. That's not the kind of Savior they wanted or expected. That is not the kind of Savior that most Americans want. Or expect. Most men want a Barack Obama who's going to usher in good times, economic prosperity, make life on earth just grand. But I'll tell you this, most men also go to hell. Christ came into this world to save sinners, not to be a politician. He didn't endure the wrath of God to make some empty political statement. He didn't become a curse just to hang there and look silly. Yes, the cross is offensive. God never said it wasn't. It was meant to be. But its offensiveness, remember this, its offensiveness does not show the weakness of the Savior. Its offensiveness speaks volumes in showing men the offensiveness of their sin. The Messiah was slaughtered for sin. Not His own. If you're a good man, you're going to stumble 
at this kind of Savior. If you're a good man, this is offensive or it's needless. It's foolishness. You don't need it. But if you're a bad man and you're wallowing in your sin, We don't think so much in our day about the offensiveness of the cross. Jesus Christ described this rock of offense. He said, if you fall on it, it breaks you to pieces. If it falls on you, it crushes you. Jews, by and large, don't need a Savior like this. Most Gentiles don't either. Most men are good enough to get by, they think. The cross is offensive. You guys, some of you know about it. A message, the scandal of the cross. Let me tell you something. The promises were to Israel. That's true. And I'll tell you what, salvation is of the Jews. And unless you become a Jew, you will not be saved. But as he goes on to say, not all Israel is Israel. Just because they were born of that bloodline does not make them. All the promises given to them, 2 Corinthians 1.20 says, find their yes in Christ. Every covenant given finds its fulfillment in Christ. They were given the worship. In all their worship, the shadows pointed them to Christ. Yes, the patriarchs, the fathers, Abraham and Isaac and Jacob came from their bloodlines. But in Galatians, you find that a true son of Abraham is only one by faith in Christ. And I want to tell you this. They fell. They failed. They stumbled on the rock. The reason they did is because they rejected Christ. Because in all they were given, they didn't see Him. When the law was given to them that was meant to be a schoolmaster to lead them to Christ, instead they found in it a code, a standard that they seek to try to work out. Look, if you think you're going to get to heaven because you've been a pretty good person, you know what you're telling me? You've done certain things in your life. That's no more than what the Jews did. They said, look at what we've done. We're pretty good people. 
That right there is stumbling at the rock of offense. That is seeing the cross to be foolish and I don't need it. I can get there by my own. And I'll tell you this, by the time we get to chapter 10, what you're going to find out is that they had a zeal for God. I don't care what your zeal is for God. They perished. They had a zeal. But it was not according to knowledge. You can go to a lot of churches today and they give you a lot of garbage from the pulpit about money and about how Christ came to make you successful. I'll tell you what, it does matter what you're taught. It does matter what you believe. It does matter what knowledge you have. They had a zeal. They were ignorant. They lacked knowledge and they perished. The truth is found only in Christ. It's only there. Their salvation is in no other. Yes, we're going to look at the strewn carcasses of the Israelites. We're going to see they stumbled. We're going to see they never achieved what they sought after. They never got to the place where they were right with God. I'll tell you what, whether it's Jew or whether it's Gentile, it's all the same. There's no difference. You will only be accepted if you call upon the name of the Lord Jesus Christ. It doesn't matter if you're Jew or Gentile. There's no difference, we're told, in Christ. Jew and Gentile don't exist in this realm. At least, naturally. But you've got to become a Jew spiritually. How do you do that? Well, you've got to become one of the children of Abraham. How do you do that? Paul tells us, by faith in Christ. This was such a huge deal to Paul. Like I could tell you, three whole chapters, Paul, to tell us this, you better believe it. Because those promises, Christians are given at the, all through those first eight chapters, but especially at the end of Romans 8. He does not want there to be the slightest doubt, folks. If you are in Christ Jesus, our Lord, it is impossible to separate you from the love of God. Impossible. No promise will fail. In their rock of offense to some, a rock of salvation to others. Unmovable. You're dismissed.